Well, let's go ahead and start with what we got then. Yay! Everyone who's here today automatically gets an A. No, 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 no. I'll <laughs> All right, so we have homework five due tomorrow. If that's too much and you need an extra day on it, because I gave that to you just yesterday, you can have the extra day, but that's also material for the exam. So I recommend looking at it in any case. Question? Yeah. Sure. Inverse log, log button. Yes. It's whatever, it's, it'll say, the, the button will say log, L O G, and then there'll be a second function or a shift or something above it. It'll probably say like 10 to the X. Oh, okay. And you just use the second function to push that and push that. Okay. It depends on the calculator. Sure. It's, been, it's been many years yeah. since I've used calculators. And where is it? Log. So in this case, okay. it's going to be the blue. Okay. It just depends on, okay. they're all different. Yep. Okay. Yep. So that's homework five. Again, as much as it, you, you won't see that problem on the <laughs> exam because that is a little more mathematical. And then the exam covering chapters 10, 11, and 12 will be on uh, tomorrow, on tomorrow, will be tomorrow as well. The iTunes quiz is up and available, so you can take that now. I just activated it this morning. Now that there's 12 questions, uh, that'll be available through this week, uh, through Thursday slash Friday morning, so you can do, do that as well. And then the other thing due this week will be the second article review. That'll be due on Thursday slash Friday morning as well. I put up, I've, I didn't see how the exam corrections work for this one. I know a couple people turned them in. Um, I put them up there for, number, for the second exam if you want to do them again. Um, it's less credit on the second exam. You won't get half the points back, mainly because I already gave you like eight points. Everybody gave everybody eight points. So if I ended up doing that, I'd have people with you know, 60s out of 60. If someone did everything, they could end up with you know 60. So but you'll probably get a. I have to look at the numbers. It'll be like a third to a quarter of the points back. So you can still get some credit, but it will be less than it was on the first. Yeah. So say about a quarter of a point. So if you missed one, you might get a quarter of a point. So for each four, you'll add one point. And I'll look, it might be a third if it's not quite so bad, but let's go with a quarter, so it'll be better than what, you, what we think if you want to do that. But that's mainly because you've already gotten eight points back for that I already threw in there that's already been added in. So that would be due next Monday. And then homework six, which I also gave you last time, is due on Tuesday. And the third and final set of solar observations that I'm collecting to take a look at will also be due on Tuesday. And then that week we will also Probably that same day, I'll actually go through and give you some numbers and we'll go through the calculations. It'll probably be a week from today on the 18th when I do that. And then the project itself will be due the following, following week, which is the last week of class. So, yay. Alrighty. So, question, other questions? And it's almost over. <laughs> I know, I'm sad. Well, I'm. I take 103 next semester. Okay. Maybe. Well, I'm, I'm teaching 103 blended next semester if you like a so blended class. Are you teaching it? I'll probably spring? teach a regular here, yeah. In the fall or the spring? In the spring, next spring term, I should be teaching a regular okay. 103 class. I'll bring in the spring but yeah, if you want, so the, the, I'm teaching a blended, which is about a quarter of the classes here, and the rest is all online. Yeah, I don't think I'm teaching 104 again in the fall term, so. Okay. It would be. It would not be near as rushed. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. Well, boy, nobody else but is going to come today. Katrina, so what? I yeah, you wouldn't have gotten to me. No, she would. She'd be busy at school that time That's of year. Right. So. <laughs> all right. Picture of the day for today then is another star-forming region. Boy, we just looked at one of these, but it just kind of fits in with what we were talking about yesterday. Uh, this is another star-forming region, uh, NGC 3582. Again, the specific number isn't important. That's a catalog designation, which is how we uh, define most of the objects in astronomy, our catalog. Uh, when you have, this is catalog number 3582 in this catalog. Yes? Can you turn this computer on so that I can follow the notes? Oh, I guess. I guess I can. It doesn't show so up on my iPad. Yep. Ah. Well, it does, but it doesn't, if that makes any sense. There you go. I can only watch a couple of them. So if there's, if there's 3,000 plus objects, that's not the last object in the catalog, that's a lot of names to be able to come up with. So 
It's just a star forming region named by the catalog name. And there are a number of young stars. You can see the bluish coloring here. Uh, the bluish would be uh, where the very young stars, their light is heading outwards, expanding out into this nebula, and then reflecting off dust. So you're seeing the ver where the very hottest stars are in their light reflecting off the dust. Around that, you see a lot of redder color. The redder color will be the hydrogen gas that's being excited by those same stars. So here in this area, it's reflecting off the dust. Further out, that energy is exciting the, exciting the gas and causing it to glow with that reddish line, reddish glow of hydrogen. And then finally, you see up here, maybe towards the top, you see some very dark areas. That's where the star formation is currently going on, but is hidden from us by the dust. So we can't see into those visibly if we looked at them in infrared or if we looked at them in radio waves, we'd be able to look in there and probably see some of those fragments forming, some of those protostars that are in the process of forming right here. This is what these looked like, you know, 100, 100,000 years ago. They would have been dark areas and now they've since broken out. 100,000 years from now, these will have broken out. The stars will then be visible and will be exciting the gas and will change the actual shape and form of the nebula over time. So, question, question? I guess we only got to look this way today. Alrighty, well, let's go to, let's go back and finish up chapter 12. And we were finishing up, I'd gotten most of the way through the life of a star like the sun. And we were finally getting to, we got all the way down to a white dwarf star and now, after it becomes a white dwarf, it's pretty much dead. Nothing is going to happen to it, at least for the one like the sun. There are some cases where things can happen to a white dwarf, and we'll talk about those here in just a minute. But once the sun becomes a white dwarf, there's nothing that's going to change. It has no energy source, so it cannot gain any more energy. It can't get another fuel source and start glowing again. It's just this really, really hot core of the star that is slowly cooling off, and it's going to cool off and get cooler and cooler and cooler. As it cools off, as it gets cooler, it's going to get fainter and fainter and fainter and eventually would become invisible, become a black dwarf and be completely invisible. Again, that takes a long time and a long time even, bless you, astronomically speaking, meaning that the very first white dwarfs that formed very early on in the universe, 13, 14 billion years ago, are still white dwarfs. It takes a long time for them to cool off. So we're talking you know, hundreds of billions of years to trillions of years for them to cool. Now, but something can happen to a white dwarf, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit here before I go and talk about a higher mass star. There are some uh, situations that have been seen um, over even thousands of years where a star is observed or where no star is observed in some cases for a long time and then all of a sudden a star is observed to be the, in that area. Much, much bright, a very, very bright star appears to be in that area. And this is what is called a nova for a new star. And it comes up very, very suddenly. If we look at the brightness here, there was some star that was you know, similar in brightness to the sun. Just a typical ordinary star there and it stayed very level. And all of a sudden it shot up in brightness and then slowly went back down again over the period of a couple months. So it got real bright for a month or so here and by you know two months later it was back down to where it had started. And that's what we call a nova. Now we'll talk about a supernova uh, later in this chapter. That's a completely different object. That's much, much different. Gets many, many times brighter. But for a very short time this star will go from the brightness it was to being 10,000 times brighter. Now, if you remember the magnitudes, right? Five magnitudes is a hundred times factor of brightness. Ten magnitudes then would be ten thousand times brighter. So that would mean you could take a star 
In this case, the nova that's getting 10,000 times brighter, if this was a star that was barely visible, one of the faintest stars in the sky, sixth magnitude, and it were to become a nova, it would, for that short period of time, be brighter, be as bright as the planet Venus in the sky. Extremely bright. It would be a negative fourth magnitude. Extremely bright in the sky just for a very short period of time and then not be visible at all. You could also have a star that is not visible at all, that was, you know, a tenth magnitude star. You can't see it, right? You go out there and look every night, no matter how hard you look, no matter how dark it is, it's too faint to simply be seen. If it becomes a nova, suddenly it gains ten magnitudes, so it goes from a tenth magnitude star up to a zero. One of the brighter stars, typical compared to one of the brighter stars in the sky. So all of a sudden you can have where no star was visible, you know, thousands of years ago you can see a star. So something sudden, something happening here, something unusual happening with this star. Why is it getting bright, so bright all of a sudden for such a short period of time? And what we think actually happens is that this does involve a white dwarf star. And there's the white dwarf star here on the right in this sketch. The white dwarf star, if there is another star nearby it, if it's a binary star, so a pair of stars orbiting together, that you can have them close enough that the gravity of the white dwarf actually will suck material off the main sequence star, its companion star, take some of that material and start to collect it. It spirals in and collects on the surface of the white dwarf. Now at first that won't do much of anything, but if you think about what that is, what is the outer part of a star made up of? It's all hydrogen. So as that hydrogen collects on the surface of the white dwarf, it builds up pressure, it builds up pressure, it's got this very hot compact object there, and eventually you can get to the point where you have enough hydrogen collected on the surface of that, that you have nuclear reactions begin. You start fusing that hydrogen into helium. So all of a sudden, instead of deep down in the core having hydrogen fusion into helium, right on the surface of this star, hydrogen begins fusing into helium and you have a great outburst of energy. It gets incredibly bright for a short period of time. Now it do doesn't affect the star much. The white dwarf star is still going to stay there. It's not going to change. It's just going to blow off that material. It's going to have an explosion on its surface of this material and blow that off into space and then calm back down and do the whole thing all over again. So starting again, once it becomes a nova, then it will start collecting material again. So many of the novae that we see actually occur on a somewhat regular basis, meaning that every 50 or 100 years or 150 years, depending on how fast the mass is transferring, this star will undergo a nova explosion. But it doesn't destroy the star, so this is actually a repeatable. Uh, typically you can have it go over and over, uh, you can have it occur over and over again. Not weekly, not monthly, it takes a much longer time for the mass to transfer and to build up enough material for that explosion to take place. But it does happen. Now this cannot happen to the sun simply because we don't have another, another star there. We don't have another star to give us material. The planets will be close, the planets couldn't, couldn't supply near enough material to be able to collect, to be able to do this. So what happens here is that material falls onto the white dwarf. Eventually you get enough material that fusion begins, all of a sudden burns off that material, streams it out into space. So there's the star left behind and there's the material that's sending out into space. And then it starts, then the process will start all over again. Here's some pictures here on the bottom actually showing the ring as, it, as the material expands out. So the explosion had occurred. And a little while later, you could see a ring of material around this star. And a little bit later, that ring's gotten bigger. A little bit later, bigger and bigger. As you could watch it, it would slowly expand out into space. So it's just throwing that little bit of material, relatively small amount, that was transferred onto the white dwarf out into space. And when it becomes, when it first happens, that's when it becomes bright. That first initial explosion, that only takes a few, few weeks. It only lasts for you know, a month or so when it's really, really bright, and then it will quickly fade down. 
And this is what you would see well after that when you go and look at that with a telescope, with a powerful telescope after and see what happened there. You can find out that yes, there's a star still there and we can see this ring of material that slowly over months and years is expanding out into space. All right, so that's sort of the end states of the star like the sun. Um, the nova phase would not occur for the sun, but would occur for similar stars if they happen to be in a binary system where they're actually close enough together. If a star is more massive than the sun, what can happen? Well, it's a little bit different. It really depends on what the mass of the star is. Here's our one solar mass star. That's the sun. It moves upward and towards the right and towards the red giant branch. If we have a star that's four or ten times as massive as the sun, the patterns are a little bit different. They travel back and forth a little bit on the HR diagram. They get, they get cooler, then they get hotter, then they get cooler again. They kind of zigzag back and forth. And it really depends on what the mass of that star was. And that is different than when the stars form. Remember when they formed, they all seemed the same pattern. They would just shift it off a little bit. Here things are a little bit, are di quite different depending on the mass of a star. A very massive star does something quite different with all these zigzags on it as a, a one solar mass star. And part of the difference is that you're able to burn different elements. So we all they all burn hydrogen while they're on the main sequence. Here this ignites helium here at the helium flash. A four solar mass star will ignite helium and then carbon and may go a little bit beyond. A ten solar mass star, helium, then carbon starts to burn, then oxygen. We're burning heavier and heavier elements because we have more mass and we can increase the temperatures to an even greater extent. We can get much higher temperatures and much higher pressures and allow even, even heavier elements to be able to fuse together. So these larger stars actually have more energy sources than the smaller stars. The very smallest stars, way down here, would only ever be able to fuse hydrogen. They'd not even be able to get enough high, high enough temperature to be, be able to fuse helium. So, like, the, like all the stars, once you use up the hydrogen, you're done. You're, you're leaving the main sequence. Once that hydrogen fuel is used up, the beginning events start, starts out the same. You're going to do the same things. You're not going to go from burning hydrogen to helium to all of a sudden burning carbon. You have to go through the same stages. So the first thing you're going to do is have a shell of hydrogen around a core that is burning helium into carbon. So first you have a hydrogen shell around that helium core. Then the, he the core starts to burn helium into carbon. And you've got hydrogen and helium shells. That's exactly what we had for the star like the sun. You were able to have, you're building up that layers uh, where you had your star there and you had, in this case, you had carbon, carbon ash at the center. This is where the sun got. And around it, not even close to scale, the star would be way off that. You had helium burning into carbon, building up that core. And you had hydrogen burning into helium. So hydrogen is adding to the helium shell. Helium then adds to the carbon core. And the temperatures will continue to increase. Now for the sun, you were never able to increase the carbon temperature enough to actually cause it to fuse. You couldn't get enough. You couldn't get a high enough temperature. There wasn't enough matter in the star. For more massive stars, that's not the case. And you'll eventually be able to get that carbon to be able to fuse into other elements as well. So for larger stars, it'll actually become uh, many more layers. You'll actually get layers of hydrogen to helium and helium to carbon, and then carbon to oxygen and oxygen to, uh, what is it, oxygen to neon and then neon and so on. You'll build up a whole big layers, a whole big layer, like a great big onion there with all these different layers of materials, all these shells that are burning one element into the next with the heaviest element that is currently there at the core. Now, for the larger masses, uh, I told you that for a star like the sun, the helium kind of flashes when it explodes. It goes all at once. It starts burning all at once. That doesn't happen for the more massive stars. 
Um, the helium action, the helium burning will start gradually, much as the hydrogen burning did. That's because with those more massive stars, they build up the material quicker. A star like the sun takes a long time to build up to that high pressure. And the density of the material gets so heavy and so hard back down in that core that it takes a lot of energy to, um, to uh, get it ignited. Once it gets ignited, it burns very, very rapidly. So you do not get that flash in the larger stars. Anything larger than about two and a half times the size of the sun will just start burning helium nice and calmly just like it burned hydrogen. You won't have this almost explosion in the core. Once you get to the four solar mass star, it really doesn't make any of those sharp jumps back and forth that we did with the others. Recall that a star like the sun, we had a main sequence. And it went up and it kind of jumped and it jumped over here and then it went back up again. It had some very sharp turns, especially here at the helium flash. It had a big jump. All of a sudden something happened there when the helium ignited and it jumped back down. It had a great big sharp change. When you get to the higher mass stars, they kind of well, wiggle around and you know, move around. They work their way over there, but they don't jump back and forth very quickly. There's no sharp moves. Everything just kind of winds back and forth when you get to the higher mass stars. So here is an example of a, a high mass star. These are actually some images taken by Hubble Space Telescope. And you're seeing the unstable star, the red giant, that is starting to eject material. You're seeing the beginnings of a planetary nebula here. So eventually this will become a full-fledged planetary nebula. The material will be expelled fully out into space. Right now we're seeing it all very down, very close to the star. And here's, those eject here's the ejected material. When you look in here, you're actually seeing that the star, you're not actually seeing, you're not seeing just the expansion, you're seeing the light moving out. What that means is this red giant star has emitted a pulse of light, some big flash of light. And as that light travels out, it's illuminating all the dusty layers that are around this star. So all that dust is there in each of those images. And as it the light moves outward, it illuminates different, air different parts of it. So it illuminates the inner material. It illuminates things further out and even further out as the light travels. So it's not the dust that is traveling this quick. It wouldn't be able to because it's traveling so fast. It would be traveling at the speed of light. But it is the light illuminating the dust that has been expelled over hundreds of thousands of years as the star changes. So we're seeing some of that material. Again, this is still part of the beginning of that planetary nebula. Some of the material being pushed out into space and leaving the star. So this was material that was part of the star you know, millions of years ago. It was part of the star all down in one spot and has slowly been pushed off into space over time. And that's where we're seeing now. We're seeing, in this case, we're seeing a pulse of light from the star as it is going through its uh, dying phases. And as that burst of light comes out, it can actually illuminate different parts of that dust that is surrounding it that would otherwise be invisible. So these are actually these are all visible light images, and these are from Hubble Space Telescope. On the left, you see the, the unstable star down here. Again, as it gets to these very largest phases, it becomes unstable. Materials, material gets pushed off. And in this case, you see it being pushed off in two blobs, uh, one on each side. And you could also get jets of material coming almost perpendicular. In some cases, you'd actually get a jet of material as well. All right. Now, we get to the most massive stars. If you've got a star that's eight times the mass of the sun, now things start to really change. The stars that are two and a half and four times the mass of the sun, they get to burn a little bit more in their core. But they usually end up with exactly the same fate. They end up as a white dwarf star. When you get to stars more than eight times the mass of the sun, so very rare stars, there aren't that many of those that around. If you remember the mass diagram we had from the previous or two chapters ago now, um, they're very rare. But they can get well beyond carbon in terms of what they burn in their, in their core. And they pretty much just travel from a very hot star over to being a much cooler star. Their brightness doesn't change. 
All these other ones, the brightness changed significantly. The sun is going to go from being a very, very faint star, typically, to being a rather bright red giant star. A very massive star is just going to sort of wander over from very low mass to very, uh, very from, from very sorry, very massive star is going to wander from being very low to high temperature to being very low temperature. All it's doing is cooling off and getting much larger, but balanced almost exactly so that the temperature stays almost exactly the same. So very little change in luminosity. The brightness of it does not change at all. These are the type of stars that are eventually going to explode in a supernova explosion. So sun doesn't have to worry. The sun is never going to become a supernova. Um, it's never going to get become unstable. Its core is never going to be able to come unsta- become unstable and tear itself apart. So while we've got to worry about the sun expanding and swallowing the Earth and getting hotter and burning up the Earth, we don't have to worry about it exploding and tearing the Earth apart in that kind of, in that way, as more massive stars would do. So what are we going to end up with? Um, depending on what the initial mass of the star is, table from the textbook here, if you have an initial mass, very, very low masses, less than about a tenth the mass of the sun, it's never going to become a star. It's going to be a big ball of hydrogen, essentially a giant Jupiter. And that's what we call a brown dwarf star. It was never hot enough to be able to ignite nuclear reactions in its core. For the lower mass stars, things that are about a quarter the mass of the sun or less, you end up with a helium white dwarf. It burned hydrogen into helium, formed that core, but could never get temperatures that would actually ignite helium. So it's a great big ball, great big ball of helium and that's about it. A little bit more massive, our sun falls in this range, about quarter to about eight times the mass of the sun a carbon-oxygen white dwarf. You fused helium into carbon. Maybe in some of the more massive ones, you fuse some of that carbon into oxygen. So you have carbon and oxygen in terms of a white, in a white dwarf. When we say oxygen there, we're not thinking of the oxygen that you're breathing. Same element. It's exactly the same element. But it's all in a very solid form. It's all very compressed into this material that is denser than anything you can imagine on Earth. So it's oxygen, but don't think of it as, oh, we can go there and breathe. You can't go there and breathe. There's no oxygen that's breathable. It's just oxygen nuclei smashed together in a very, nuclei and atoms smashed together in this very compact object about the size of the Earth. A little bit bigger ones, maybe about 8 to 12. These numbers sort of get a little bit iffy as you get as they get larger and larger. You get another type of white dwarf you've burned up into oxygen. You've gone burning carbon, which is where the sun will get. Uh, jump two elements to oxygen. Jump two more, you can get up to neon, and you can get white dwarfs that are in that range that will burn up through that'll have neon in the core. And then a greater than about 12. 8 to 12 times. It really depends on how much mass is lost by the star as it goes through its life. Yes, ma'am? Um, do you have the study guide for this? Um, it's online. I didn't print it out, but it is on, it is on D2L. Okay. Yeah, you can use that for the exam again, yeah. Okay. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't think about it. Someone should have reminded me yesterday and I would have. That's okay. You can, give it, you can get it on D2L. Okay. I'll send an email reminder out after. So greater than 12 times or so, just because we really don't know how much mass is lost. And I'm going to go back one slide here, or two slides maybe. There it is. How much mass was lost? Have we lost a solar mass worth of material from a 10 solar mass star or two? Or have we lost a half? How much material is there? We don't know the process and how much mass is easily lost by these stars. And that makes a big difference in determining you know, what the initial mass was, how much material you're going to have left. If you lose enough mass, then it's going to change the final fate of that star. Okay. Now, a supernova, I mentioned a nova. A nova got, what was it, about 10,000 times brighter? A supernova gets even brighter than that. A supernova can get more than a million times brighter than a nova. So not a million times brighter than the sun, but a million times brighter than the nova, which is already 10,000 times brighter. 
So you've got another couple factors of 100 in there. And you're brightening things by another, say, roughly 15 magnitudes or so. We've already brightened at 10. If we brighten at 15 more, that means you're brightening something by 25 magnitudes. That would mean if you took one of the brightest stars in the sky and it were to go supernova, take one of those very brightest stars and it were to go supernova, it would be as bright as the sun. Not as big as the sun, but it would be as bright as the sun when you looked at it. 25 magnitudes, if you had a star that was around zero magnitude, which is some of the brightest ones, you'd be up to negative 25. Sun's about a negative 26. You'd have something almost as bright as the sun. That also means that you can take stars that are, not, that are barely visible. You could take a star that was at the very limits of what you can observe at about 30th magnitude. That's what you can observe with like Hubble Space Telescope, some of the biggest telescopes you can get down to about 30th. If you brighten that by 25 magnitudes, all of a sudden you've taken a star that was not even visible, not even barely visible with Hubble Space Telescope and is now barely visible with the naked eye. So what can you do in between? You can make a star that is you know, rather faint or very hard to see with even a big telescope that all of a sudden becomes one of the brightest stars in the sky. Now there's two different type, types of supernovae that we see here. And we, they differentiate them by how their light behaves. They both get bright really, really quickly. This is the time in days. This is one of the few things in astronomy that we actually talk about that is a time scale that we can comprehend, right? I can start talking about months, you know, two months, three months, how long that is. So it gets really, really bright very quickly. Within, within a day, it's incredibly bright and has reached, you know, 10 million times brighter than the sun in terms of true luminosity, putting out more energy than 10 million suns. Then depending, a type 1 supernova slows down a little quicker, takes a little bit longer to brighten and then slows down and gradually drops off. A type 2 supernova brightens a little bit quicker, gets up to that peak very, very fast, actually gets a little bit brighter, drops down, levels off for a couple months there, then slowly begins to fade down again. So there's two types that have been observed and we find that there are two different types of objects that are actually creating them. And that's what we're going to look at here. So two different types of objects, two different uh, things related to what we've been talking about in this case. So a supernova, unlike a nova, we had a nova, a nova could occur over and over again. You could keep burning off those outer layers. A supernova is something that happens only once. It is tearing that star completely apart. Two kinds, type 1 and type 2, inventively named, right? Type 1 and type 2. Uh, type 1 is a carbon called a carbon detonation supernova. And type 2, which is the one we're really talking about right now, type 2 is the death of a high mass star. That's when you get to a star that's that was 20 times the mass of the sun, built up, went through all these elements up in its core, and then finally tore itself apart. So type 2 is the one that we're looking at when we're watching these stars evolve in the HR diagram. When they get over here, eventually they tear themselves apart. Type 1 is a different type of supernova, is something different, but is actually much more closely related to the nova process that I already described. So you're familiar with it a little bit because I've just talked about that. But there's two different types that occur in about equal numbers. They're just about as likely to see either one. The last time we saw one of these in our own galaxy was 1590s. It's been a long time. You know, we're due for a supernova in our galaxy. It's been uh, since before Galileo turned the telescope to the sky that we've actually seen a supernova in our own galaxy. So in terms of studying them, that makes them difficult. That means anything we've learned about a supernova, we've studied either with a telescope by observing them in other galaxies. We've seen plenty there. We can see plenty looking at other galaxies. But to see them within our own galaxy is very difficult. Um, mainly because, again, we're looking through all that dust. So any supernova that occurs, where is my pen? There's a pen. 
in our galaxy, which looks something like that maybe, a spiral galaxy. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. And if we're out here someplace, well, we can see this little region around us, but if we try to look too far away, it's all blocked out by the dust. We can't see the center of our galaxy. We can't see the other side of our galaxy. So a supernovae could be occurring here right now, and we'd never know about it, because even though they're getting that bright, there's so much dust in between us and that supernova that we never see it. When we look at other galaxies, we're looking out of our galaxy and not looking through all that dust, so we can actually see them in other galaxies. All right. So what is a carbon detonation supernova? Let's do type 1 first. This is really the same process as the nova. It's a white dwarf that is collecting mass from its companion star. So the white dwarf is collecting mass, but in some cases it can collect too much mass. It can collect too much mass. There is a limit to how massive a white dwarf star can be. A white dwarf star is being held up by pressure of electrons. Okay? If we think about that, take all the atoms in anything and squish them as close as you possibly can. There's usually a lot of space between the atoms. But you can push them closer and closer together and just like the protons wanted to repel, those electrons eventually want to repel each other if they push them too close and that provides some kind of pressure that holds that star up against gravity. If you put too much pressure on it, eventually it's going to collapse, right? We've got a we have a chair here. You know, I can start putting weights on the chair. I can put 10 pounds, I can put 100 pounds, I can put 200 pounds, 300 pounds, 400, 500. Eventually, the chair is going to collapse. Right? I'll eventually put too much weight on the chair. It's not structurally able to hold up against that much weight and it'll crush it. Think of that as the same thing that's happening to the star. If you get over a certain mass limit, there's, it can't hold it up. It can't, the pre, it's no longer structurally, uh, structurally sufficient to be able to hold up to that material. It's going to collapse, it's going to crush itself. So the limit for a white dwarf star is 1.4 times the mass of the sun. So for a white dwarf, it's 1.4 times the mass of the sun. So the sun doesn't have to worry about this. You're not going to be able to collect a four-tenths of a solar mass of material. You're not going to ever going to be able to collect that kind of material. Especially when you don't have another star around you. But if you had a, a star that was a little bit more massive than the sun and perhaps formed with you know, 1.39 solar masses and is collecting material, it may be able to collect just enough to push it over that limit. There is an exact limit. Once you get enough weight, you know, I put enough weight on one of these chairs, it's going to collapse. If I put enough weight, enough material on that star, eventually that star collapses. And the electrons that are holding it up, they just can't, they can't hold anymore. They buckle in and the core begins to collapse. Essentially what happens is you have this collapsed star. It starts collapsing down even further. And all of a sudden, the carbon that was in its core, primarily carbon, starts to burn. All of a sudden you start fusing that carbon into heavier elements and it doesn't begin just nice and smoothly in the core as it did with some of these very massive stars. Yeah, they burned carbon. It was no big deal. But the carbon, when this collapse occurs, the carbon fusion begins in the entire star all at once. In the outer layers, in the inner layers, all that energy being produced and the car tears its the, the star the star will tear itself apart. So it's really a great explosion just ripping that star apart and really leaving nothing behind. So I said usually there's some, there could be something left behind in some cases. In this one, in a carbon detonation supernova, there's nothing left. The whole star has torn itself apart and spread all that material back out into the universe. So here's an example looking at them. This is a type 1, is the carbon detonation, sort of trying to give it to you graphically now that I've given it to you in words. You have a binary star system. You have a smaller star and a bigger star. Bigger star goes through its life quicker, finishes it up, becomes a white dwarf with a planetary nebula. 
Okay, nebula material spreads out into space. Eventually this star goes through its life and becomes a red giant star. So here's the white dwarf collecting material from this now red giant star. And eventually if you collect enough material, you won't in all cases, you have to have that white dwarf right at that edge of that limit. But if you have it there, then eventually that is going to tear itself apart and leave absolutely nothing behind. It's going to rip itself apart and send all that entire, that whole material, that one, almost one and a half solar masses worth of material, send that back out into space. Now a type 2 supernova, uh, a little bit different, it's building up, that's, that's what happens at the end of the life of a star. Here's what normally happens, we've got the hydrogen, we have the helium and we have the carbon building up. It continues that process. So again, we don't have layers just like I had here with carbon. You actually have more layers beginning to build up. You have, you'll end up with things like iron in the core and then you'll have, uh, what, sulfur. You don't need to worry about the specific ones, but you'll have sulfur and you'll have silicon. And you'll have neon. And I'm probably skipping some layers, but oxygen. Carbon, helium, hydrogen. So bigger and bigger elements as you work down until you get down to iron in the core. Iron is the most stable element in terms of how tightly bound it is. If you recall, when we said we fused hydrogen into helium, there was a little bit of a mass difference. You took four hydrogen atoms, four protons, smashed them together, made a helium nucleus. The helium nucleus weighed a little tiny bit less, not, a, not much, but a little bit less, and that difference was, became energy. That was a little bit of matter being converted to energy that powered the star. Helium into carbon does the same thing. Three helium nuclei, a little bit less massive than one carbon nucleus creates a little bit of energy each time that happens that powers the star. As you work your way down, sulfur and, and that once you get up to iron, materials forming iron, little bit, little bit more massive, you lost a little tiny bit of mass, but if you try to take two iron nuclei and smash them together, imagine the temperatures you need, we're at 100, we're at 100 million degrees to try to smash helium together. Now you have something with 26 protons. I won't try to do that with my fingers. I had trouble doing six. So 26 protons here, 26 protons here. They don't want to get close together at all. They really want to push each other apart. You need really high temperatures to smash them together. And even when you do, you don't get any energy out of it. You smash them together and it actually takes energy to fuse them together. It actually sucks a little bit of energy and a little bit of temperature out of that core every time you fuse them together. If it cools off, it starts to collapse a little bit more, so the pressures increase, and it becomes a runaway explosion. So the iron fusing together is cooling off the core a little bit. The core collapses in to try to keep heating it up. It keeps heating it up as you're taking that pressure away. And eventually what it will do is tear itself apart. There'll be, it'll implode first, so everything falls down, all the material is falling down. It will rebound at the core, eventually it will hit a solidness and bounce back up. And that is what will tear the star apart. So the star will actually get torn apart by the rebound of that explosion. So a, this type of supernova is really an implosion first, in that everything is collapsing inward to the core, and then expanding back outward. So what do we see left at the end? Uh, the supernova remnant is what would be left. These are a couple examples. Uh, the pretty one there up in the upper, uh, upper left-hand side is the Crab Nebula. That's in the constellation of Taurus. And that is a supernova explosion that was observed about a thousand years ago. In the year 1054, a great supernova was, was noted in records of the time. And at that spot where it was, where it was noted, we now see this Crab Nebula which is just, again, the outer layers of that star, that star that is expanded out into space. If you zoom in a little bit closer here, you actually see that there is, in this case, a remnant left behind. So there is something left behind. In a type 2 supernova, 
the one where a massive star is exploding, you can have a little piece of material left behind. So some of that material can be left. And that's something we'll really talk about, unless I have it in here that I don't remember, in the next, cha- in the next chapter as to what's left behind there. Uh, the other one here is another one of the, another, another example of a supernova remnant, just the wisps of material that have been expanded out into space after such an explosion. All right, so start on to star clusters and how we can look at this and see what's going on here. So I've told you a lot of stuff about how the stars evolve. How can we actually see this? You know, we can't sit there and watch any one star go through its life. For a star like the sun, you'd need 11, 12 billion years. For uh, more massive stars, less time, but still you need millions of years for this to occur. If we look at stars in the HR diagram of clusters, what we see, we can look at a cluster, then they're all about the same age. We know that the stars are all about the same age. And we can then watch how the stars appear to move. So we know what is this, what does a cluster look like? What do stars look like as they're being born at an initial time when the most massive stars are just reaching the main sequence? What do they look like after 10 million years? And in this case, as it's forming, the one thing you see is that most stars, while the more massive stars have reached the main sequence, these very small stars haven't yet gotten there. They have not reached the main sequence yet. So they have not yet gotten to that level. They're still working their way down. They're still in the process of collapsing to become a star while these stars have already reached the main sequence. After about 10 million years, there's a few stars that are already gone. They've gone through their lives. They're already beginning to go into uh, the red giant phase. They've used up all the hydrogen in their core. While they're leaving the main sequence, we've still got these small stars taking their good old time. They're, they're in no hurry. They're going to be around for a trillion years. They're still slowly working their way. They're still slowly collapsing to the main sequence. So some stars have already left the main sequence. Other stars are, just, are still just arriving, even in this cluster. And they've all formed at the same time. It's just a matter of how long it takes each, each to form. Now if we go a little bit further in time, after about 100 million years, We start to see here, again, very similar, except now we've got almost all of the stars have reached the main sequence. There's just a few little stragglers here that have not quite reached it. And we're starting to see a few more, few red giant stars starting to appear over here, um, but not all that much. After about a billion years, we start to begin to see what we call a turnoff point. There's a point on the main sequence where the stars are just beginning to turn off. It's not very distinct here. It's not very distinct in the earlier images we looked at on the previous slide. But it starts to become better defined. We can pick the point where these stars are just leaving the main sequence. And that's after about a billion years. We can use that point in a cluster to determine the age. How old is that cluster? Well, we look at the most massive stars that are still present on the main sequence. And that gives us a way to estimate the ages. So we can look at that turnoff point. What stars are just leaving the main sequence, just finished up using their fuel and beginning to leave the main sequence? That's one way we can determine ages of the clusters. After about 10 billion years, that's about the age of, that's about uh, twice the age of the sun. That'll be the sun when it's uh, gone or as it's leaving. The sun will be leaving the main sequence. We start to see a much more well-defined uh, life, lifespan here. There's the main sequence. There's still all those real faint stars. They're still there. They're still chugging away. They're, they're good for another billion, 10 billion, 100 billion years. So these ones have lots of time still to go. Subgiants, as the ones that are just leaving, the sun would be in this phase at 10 billion years, would be slowly leaving the main sequence, working its way up towards the red giant branch. Will then ignite helium, end up on the horizontal branch. Once it uses up the helium fuel, burned it all the carbon, it will go back up the giant branch, the asymptotic giant branch, flip over around, and end up down as a white dwarf. And we actually begin to see the white dwarfs uh, significant here. Um, But we see all of these, lots of stars here. Part of the reason we see a lot more at this point is that these time frames take a lot longer for a smaller star. It takes a lot longer for it to go through its red giant phase a lot longer to go through its horizontal branch phase. 
And that just means that we have more chances to see stars there. And again, we begin to see the white dwarfs, the very earliest ones. The first stars to go off the main sequence won't become white dwarfs. They'll be the very most massive stars, and they will end up as supernovae explosions. All right. So here's a couple example of a couple clusters. This is actually a double cluster in the constellation of Perseus. When we look at the cluster, this is what we're going to do as part of lab today, is look at some of these uh, graphs and make a couple of them and look for these turnoff, try to look for the turnoff point. So you see there's a lot of stars on the main sequence. Some place in here it's turning off the main sequence. It's not super well defined. It's not something that everybody's going to agree on. That if five of us did it, if we had all five of us here, if five of us did it, and we'd all get slightly different versions of where exactly that turnoff point is. So it's not perfectly well defined. There's some sort of variation. Well, maybe someone says it's here, someone says it's here. There's going to be some variation in that. But it's going to give us a pretty good idea of what the age is. Because we see these very young stars still on the main sequence, we know that this cluster has to be extremely young. It can't be more than about 10 million years old because otherwise those stars would have left the main sequence. They'd be gone already if that were the case. So this is a very young star cluster. The Hyades cluster here um, is a constellation, a cluster in the constellation of Taurus is also relatively young, but you'll note that a lot of the main sequence stars up here are gone. We start to see some white dwarfs. We still see some red giants. Where are we turning off? Well, here's about as far as we go up the main sequence. So turnoff point is somewhere in this area. And not a whole lot of stars, but a few stars going over toward the red giant phase. If we figure out where that turnoff point is, we can then estimate the age. And again, that's in this case about 600 million years. So 10 million years to 600 million years, you've lost more stars. You're working your way down the main sequence. And you're going to constantly peel off these stars as they fuse up their fuel and leave the main sequence. A globular cluster gives you a much bigger, uh, much better picture. And that's more like the evolution, again, of the star like the sun, because that's what's in the process of leaving the main sequence at this time. So a very well-defined main sequence. Again, you have hundreds of thousands of stars to look at here. So it gives you a lot better view. Lots of white dwarfs. And again, the same sort of area that we went through before, subgiant branch up to the red giant, ignites that helium in a flash, jumps down to the horizontal branch, then uses up the helium fuel and moves back up. Again, zips around and ends up as a planetary nebula and then a white dwarf. That's because that's what's happening right with those stars that are in the process of leaving the main sequence there. Once you get down to this point, you're not going to see a supernova explosion, certainly not a type 2 one. Right? There, are no star, there are no massive stars up here to go supernova. You certainly can see a type 1 supernova. You've got lots of white dwarfs there. And when you have uh, many uh, millions of white dwarfs, some of them are going to be in binary systems. Some of them are going to be close to their mass limit. And some of them will end up collecting too much mass and exploding. So if you see a supernova in a globular cluster, it has to be a type 1 supernova because there aren't any of those massive stars left around. This is a very old globular cluster, about 10 to 12 billion years old, meaning it's about the age of the universe, the universe being about 13 to 14 billion years old. So this is something that formed very early on in the history of the universe. And then finally, finishing up here, the last section of the chapter is really the cycle. What happens? Well, the whole idea is that it's a process that goes on and on again. And it's not just a one-time one -time run through the, through the uh, material that we've talked about. We started out in the last chapter with the interstellar medium. We had material, dark material there that formed stars. So that collapses, forms stars. The stars go through their lives, creating heavier elements in their core. Most of the time, those heavy elements are stuck there. They don't get out. So they are going to be locked into that core. They're never getting out. But some cases, some of those more massive stars or some of those white dwarf stars that end up becoming unstable, they'll eventually explode. 
and that sends material back out into space. And that sends enriched material back out into space. Not just the outer layers. Sun will shed out its outer layers, which are mostly hydrogen and helium. But a supernova will send out lots of other elements. It'll send out carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and neon and all the heavier elements, iron and up through uranium. We'll send all of those elements out back out into space, which becomes part of the interstellar medium again. So as those expand out over millions of years, they become part of the interstellar medium, which then forms stars again. So we'll get more star formation again and continue onward with this cycle. So all the elements heavier than hydrogen or helium had to have gone through this, had to have gone through a supernova explosion in order to be formed. The only elements that were formed at the beginning of the universe were hydrogen and helium. That's it. So everything in your body, carbon, oxygen, iron, copper, zinc, you know, all the minerals and things that make up your body had to have been formed and had to have come out of a supernova explosion. That's the only way to get them back out into the rest of the universe. And this goes on and on again. We'll continue onward. All right, well, let's finish up chapter 12 here and summarize a little bit. Um, essentially, what happens once the hydrogen... Did I go through two slides there? Felt like I missed a slide there. Maybe not. Okay. Well, as hydrogen is gone in the core, so once we use up the hydrogen, again, we skipped that whole stage 7. There wasn't a lot for me to say at stage 7. It might last 10 billion years for the sun, but not a lot happens there. But once you use up that hydrogen, you start to build up this layer of shells. For a star like the sun, it might build up a couple layers. For a more massive star, it might build up a whole you know, onion skin of layers of all the different elements burning one into the other. Initially, that's the core contracts. The core has no energy source, so gravity starts to contract it and pull it down. And the outer atmosphere, the very outer layers, expand, become much larger, and cool off. Eventually, you reach temperatures where the helium it begins to fuse in the core, temperature of about 100 million degrees. For a star like the sun, that's sort of a flash, almost a little explosion within the star that expands that core, that core and collapses the outer layers. So it happens again. Remember we had when the core collapses, the outer layers expand. Well, when you expand that core, the outer layers contract. That's when the sun goes actually back down to that horizontal branch and becomes stable again. So it actually becomes a little bit smaller at one point. Eventually, after you've gone through a couple cycles of this, burning the helium, and you use up the helium, you go through this whole process again. The envelope becomes so unstable, so far out from the star, that it begins to, it actually leaves the star, the envelope gets blown off, and leaves a white dwarf star behind to cool. And then today we talked about the nova, that material is uh, gathered onto the white dwarf star from a companion. If you get enough of it there, it will start to burn. And you'll have nuclear reactions start to occur on the, on the surface of that star and blows all that hydrogen off into space in a little explosion that makes the star maybe you know, 10 magnitudes brighter, 10,000 times brighter than it was before. More massive stars. Again, that's a star like the sun. This is a more massive star. You can get all the way up to iron. You can't get beyond iron and in in get any sort of energy out of it. So once you get to an iron core, that star is dead. It's out of luck. Because once you get that iron in the core, it's not going to be stable. You can, keep, you can try to burn the iron. You're going to lose energy. You lose energy. You cool off the core of the star. It tries to collapse down even further. And it becomes a runaway. That core collapses and becomes a type 2 supernova. A type 1 supernova was a carbon explosion. We had a white dwarf star which collected too much mass and it reaches that mass limit, 1.4 times the mass of the sun. It's gone. It eventually ignites the carbon throughout that star all at once and is, and is gone. Every, element, every heavy element that we see had to be formed in the stellar cores yeah, we're forming, the sun's going to form lots of carbon. It's going to be a whole big ball of carbon there. It's not going to get back out into the universe. It's trapped in that white dwarf. So 
the carbon that we have didn't come from stars like the sun. You need a supernova explosion to actually seed that material back out into the rest of the universe to make us. And then finally, what we're going to do a little bit today is stellar evolution. We can look at that a little bit by studying star clusters. Because they've all formed at the same time, they all form from the same material. And we can start to look at how those, how those began. So and how stellar evolution works. And that's something I'm going to have you make an HR diagram and look at a little bit of that today. So question, question? No, no, no.